welcome friends in the room, friends in Fort Worth, El Paso, Austin, Phoenix, Northwest Arkansas, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, wherever you are turning in from all the different Ports Live locations. Uh, we are continuing this series, Before There Were Kings. Before I go there, how about the stars? Let's go, man. Back in the playoffs. Now, I know most of you are probably Fairweather fans like myself, who now are on the stars bandwagon just because we're back. But for you faithful, way to go, way to stick with it. Hey, um, about 20 some years ago, really in the 90s, it seems like Hollywood and entertainment looked at, you know, kind of our country and looked at people and they said, it's interesting. People really love to laugh. And then they also said, you know what else they love? We love love. And so they said, someone out there decided, you know what we should try to do is combine these two things and come up with something that would be called the romantic comedy, a rom-com. Any rom-com fans in this house? It's a very feminine howl there. But prior to that, we had, we had the romantic tragedy. They knew that we loved romantic tragedies, not being a part of one, but watching them, whether it's the Titanic, Titanic fans, or The Notebook, or uh, Romeo and Juliet, Taylor's oldest time. And then onto the scene, it seems like all these romantic comedies, like in the 90s, just burst forth. So I don't know what your favorite rom-com is, but from Hitch, remember Hitch? <laughs> to The Proposal, something about Mary, this is not an endorsement, by the way, for any of these movies, but Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days in That Yellow Dress. Pretty Woman, The Holiday, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, every movie by Matthew McConaughey that has his shirt off. It was just like it burst onto the scene. They were like, man, people love love. They love to laugh. Let's do these things together. And the romantic comedy was born. We had the romantic tragedy. Then we got the romantic comedy. And tonight, what I want to talk about is what is more common that all of us are going to experience, or hopefully, and that we have very few examples of, and that is romantic reality. Because unlike the other couple of categories, we've got lots of different variations or versions of those that they'll put in front of you. And... Uh, and none of us would want to have a romantic tragedy. Maybe many of us would want to have a romantic comedy, but the truth is if you're going to have any type of romance at all, it's going to be a story that is a romantic reality. And you may be thinking, we've got tons of romantic realities. We have The Bachelor. Isn't that romantic reality? It is the farthest thing from reality. Where 30 women are in front of one guy. This is setting up the worst possible relationship or just future together where they're flying around in helicopters. It's anything but reality TV. So tonight, I want to talk about having a romantic reality. If you're gonna have any type of romance in your future, hopefully it's not a romantic tragedy. The, the bad news is a romantic comedy, these, these movies are just not real. How to lose a guy in 10 days and that yellow dress is not in your future, ladies. It just isn't. Hate to burst the bubble, but it is possible for you to have a romantic experience, a romantic life, a marriage that is one that is a romantic reality. But in order for that to happen, you have got to know what real romance is or what real love looks like. I think one of the problems a lot of times due to these movies or maybe the songs we listen to or maybe it's just culture in general. I mean, from the moment that uh, we can watch TV or we're introduced to culture, everything is thrust of like, here's what love looks like. You got Corey and Topanga. Here's Zach and Kelly. Here's what love really looks like. And yet all too often, we're, we rarely are given, here's what real love looks like. 
So tonight, we're gonna talk about that topic, and here's why this is huge, because so many people get into marriages, and they think, like, oh man, this is real love, we're gonna have this, you and me together, and they stand in front of someone that they promised before God, family, friends, I'm gonna give the rest of my life to you, we're in it together, and then within a very short time period, often within just a couple of years, that person they promised their life to, they're signing papers to separate from. And it ends not in romantic comedy or reality, it ends in tragedy. And the God who's there doesn't want that for you and for me, but too often they get into a romantic life or a romantic story and they have a warped perspective on what real love is. So then they get in and because they don't know what real love actually looks like, they end up thinking, oh man, this is not going the way I thought it would with that person they're married to. I think I married the wrong person. So I need to go look for that real love out there somewhere else. And they either end in divorce or they end up having uh, decisions where they're, they're gonna look for it somewhere else. And it may come by way of a coworker, it may come by way of a friend, it may come by way of someone else in their life. But they search for something that they never actually, they don't even know what real love or the love that they're looking for looks like. And the good news is the Bible is very clear as it relates to when it comes to a spouse, here are some of the things that you wanna be looking at. And so we're gonna learn from the story of a woman in the Old Testament and really a relationship that he had that continues our series before there were kings. And in it, we're gonna discover three things that are a part of real love. If you're gonna have real love, if you're gonna have a romantic reality, or if uh, that being a part of your story is in your future, it will include these three things. If you're currently dating and you don't have these things, you can know that you're not headed towards a romantic reality, but a romantic tragedy. And so we're gonna discover what those three things are. We're gonna continue the series before there were kings. Before there were kings, to recap, in case you're just joining us for the first time or you missed a couple, is a look at the book of Judges. Book of Judges is essentially a story that talks about the people of God in the Old Testament. And it was a time when there was no king in Israel. There's a verse inside of the book that says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's basically a time period before there were kings. And God would raise up these things called Judges, like we've said before, a judge in ancient Israel was essentially a deliverer. It wasn't like we think a judge, Judge Judy, got the gown on. It was a person who would show up and God would deliver his people through a judge. And the story we're going to look at comes from not the book of Judges tonight, but the book of Ruth, which we're told in the very first verse of this book. So stay with me. The very first verse of the book says this took place in the time when judges ruled Israel. In fact, many scholars believe that Ruth this love story, if you will, was originally a part of the book of Judges. And it's so sharply distinct from the book of Judges that they were like, we should separate this because the book of Judges is like total chaos, carnage, war. It's like Braveheart. And uh, at some point they were like, we should separate this because this is like Braveheart and this is like the notebook. So we're going to make these two different books. And so tonight we're going to take a break from Braveheart and look at the story if you will, of the book of Ruth, of the notebook, as it were. And we're going to learn three principles of Three components that are always a part of real love. So we'll be in Ruth chapter one. I'm gonna fly through, I'm gonna tell the story and then give three takeaways. So we're gonna go through four chapters of the book of the Bible and I'll summarize some of that, but we will fly. If you do not have some time in God's word today, you are about to get it. So let's go verse one of chapter one in Ruth. In the days when judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a severe famine shows up, this is the first thing we're told. So a man from Bethlehem, in Judah, left his home, and they went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons. Here's all you need to know about Moab. Moab, uh, who lived in Moab? The Moabites, of course. Who were the Moabites? They weren't exactly great people. They were a people who worshiped a God that demanded child sacrifice. 
They were the enemies of the people of God. But for whatever reason, really just because the famine, this guy, we're told our story begins with a man picking up and moving to the country of Moab. He shouldn't have done it, but here we go. It begins the story. He takes with him his wife, whose name is Naomi. And they have two sons and they take with them. They all pick up. They move over to the country of Moab. While they're in Moab, something very quickly happens. The sons end up getting married to two Moabite women. And shortly after that, their father dies. And then it says about 10 years go by. They've married these pagan women. And we're told next that the two sons die. So Naomi, the mom, remember she was the mom. She had two sons. She had her husband. Her husband dies. And then her two children die. Her two sons die. And she's left with just her and these two women who are not even related to her other than through the sons. So they were daughters-in-law and other just women. And here's why that's significant. If you're Naomi in that time, this was a big deal. Like there wasn't 401ks, there wasn't fidelity, there wasn't any sort of like, here's your IRA, put it in this. The way that you had retirement was you had a child and you would basically say, you're my retirement fund, you're gonna take care of me when I get old. And so when you lose your children, this is a big deal, especially when you're an older woman like Naomi was. So she looks at her two formerly daughters-in-law and she says, hey, here's the deal, I'm old, I can't do anything for you, I need to go back to Israel, to my homeland, and you guys should stay here and figure it out. And get, go back to your own families and maybe you can get married again. You're still relatively young. So there's two women, one of them named Ruth, that she says this to, the other named Orpah. An unfortunate name, but here we go. So Orpah looks at her and she's like, no, we can't leave you. That would be just not good. We need to stay here for you. And she's like, no, I insist. And Orpah's like, deuces. And she leaves. And Ruth, we're told, is uh, steadfast and just says, hey, no, there's no way I'm leaving you. Who would care for you? Who's gonna protect you? And she introduces the line that if you've been in any church wedding somewhere, you probably have heard this line. It's a very beautiful uh, line, and it's this. Ruth says in verse 16 of chapter one, don't ask me to leave or turn my back. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so Naomi says, If you insist, here we go. They head back, and they head back towards the uh, town of Bethlehem, if you know the Bible or the story of Jesus where he was born. They head to the home of Bethlehem. That's where they were from originally. And it says that they get there, Ruth and Naomi, and the people of of Bethlehem are like, dude, Naomi's back. It's been 10 years. It's been a minute. Where you been? And she says, don't call me Naomi. I love the Bible because it's so honest. She says, call me Mara because God, which means bitter, because my life has become bitter. And they set up shop, Ruth and Mara, bitter, and we're told that they have returned at the time of the harvest. So they kind of go to work, and they uh, set up shop, and they're like, man, we gotta get something to eat, and they're hanging around, and so one day, Ruth says, hey, Naomi, I'm gonna go get us some food. It's the time of the harvest, means there's crop, there's grains out there, I'm gonna go try to find us something to eat. We're told this in verse two. So one day, Verse two of chapter two, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest fields and pick up some of the stalks of grains left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter. So she went and she went ahead. Basically in that time, if you were a farmer, God, because he cared about the poor and still does, God would say, hey, if you're a farmer, there's certain rules to farming. You can't pick up all of your crops. You basically have to leave some a certain amount for if poor people walking through the land, they can take some of your food and they can take, uh, so they have something to eat. It was God's first welfare system introduced, if you would. And so 
uh, Ruth says, hey, I'm gonna go get some of that food. I know that, that God has commanded that they're gonna do it. She heads over to a, a field of a certain farmer. So Ruth went about to get her grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Here we meet our Don Juan and our bachelor. <laughs> Boaz, we're told, is uh, the owner of this land. She shows up, she's picking out the wheat grain, and she's hanging out there. We're told that he's also a family member. In other words, um, Ruth's former husband that died, this was like one of his distant family members. So he's kind of in that clan and in the party. She's walking through the fields, picking up grain, hanging out, and the love story begins. And as she's doing that, we're told that verse five, Boaz looked out and he asked his foreman, who is that woman over there? And who does she belong to? Translation, insert, how you doing? From Joey at Friends style. <laughs> she's picking up grains, looking around, and he's like, that girl is fine. I have not seen her around here before. Who is that? He's told that, that she's uh, Ruth, and she's the one who's moved here and is caring for Naomi. So Boaz works up some strength, goes over, puts on the farmer flirt, and he decides that I'm gonna ask you to go on a date. They have their first date. He tells us they sit down with grain. This is, this is fascinating, the detail that it goes into. They sit down with grain, and they're sitting there and they're having roasted bread with oil and vinegar. Think macaroni grill. They're just sitting there, and he's like, so where are you from? And they begin to talk, and they're eating this meal, and we're told that Boaz just like lavishes food on her, and of course, she probably had been hungry. They'd been a part of a famine. He's giving her food. At the end of the meal, he's like, here's 40 pounds of food. Take this home to your mother-in-law. We're gonna take care of you. And he says, anytime you wanna pick grain, you come to this field. And you can have all the grain that you want. Anytime that you come to get water, I've got you covered with water. I mean, he's putting it on hard right now. Boaz is going extra. And so he's, he's over there. And she's, she's like, man, why, why are you being so kind to me? And he's like, not only that, I'm going to protect you. I've told all my guys, protect this woman. If she comes here, come here because I'll protect you. I've told anybody they lay a hand on you, they are messing with me. And so you come back to this field. And she says, why are you being so kind? And he says, because I've heard of the kindness and the loyalty that you have shown to your family. Here's verse 10, I'll read it. So, but Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. And he said, yes, I know. But I know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So she loads her up, she heads home with food, she gets home that night, and she begins to say, like, man, I met this guy, and Naomi's like, where did you get all this food? This is unbelievable. She's carrying a, a grocery cart full of just all types of loaves of bread, and she has, it's probably not loaves of bread, but it's a lot of food. And we're told that she comes home, and Naomi goes, where did you get all this food? And Ruth said, there was this guy named Boaz, and he gave me all this food, and Naomi goes, Boaz, I know Boaz. He is one of our family relatives. He is a potential family redeemer. I'll explain what that means. But essentially she says, hey, he is a potential option for you, girl. We got a chance. And she goes into matchmaker mode. Anybody have a mom that's like, hey, we got, when are you gonna get married? You know, This is what Noemi goes into. And she begins to think like, oh man, we're gonna make this happen. Uh, she begins to play matchmaker like any good mom would do in her life. So they're beginning to talk. Basically, a family redeemer, what that means was at that time in Israel, God had said that if someone marries, uh, if two people get married and the husband dies, that a close relative, if they have no children, that a close relative can marry and should marry the woman 
so as to continue the legacy of that family, to care for the land, to care for kind of their estate and all of that. And certain family members were designated as kind of family redeemers, if you will. That's the term. It was a part of the law. But point being, he basically is just on the, on the short list or on the list of like, man, he could be your beau, your Boaz. And so she goes to work. She begins to plan. She goes back day after day. Naomi, she's going there every single day getting food, you know, like, hey, how you doing? And one day, Naomi, I love this. Dude, this is so great. This is just gold. This is free, people. I'm having fun if no one else is. Naomi tells her, here's what I want you to do. I got the plan. Hits her one day. She says, Ruth, here's what we're going to do. I've come up with a plan. I need you to take a shower. (laughs) It says, I need you to clean up. I need you to put on your nicest clothes and put on some perfume so you don't smell like the field, okay? And tonight, you're going to go to Boaz's house. And he's going to be laying down. He's going to be under the covers. And I want you to go up and you're going to pull and uncover his feet. Side note, not prescriptive or not telling you to do this. This is not something a girl should leave here and be like, the application tonight, moral of the story, break into a guy's home, pull up the covers on his feet and lay there. It was a part of the custom of the day. So she says, hey, you're going to go. You're going to lay at his feet. You're going to pull back the covers and lay at his feet. And when he awakes, you're basically going to propose. She's like, are you sure that'll work? She's like, it'll work. Just trust me. Here's the perfume. She goes to his house. And it was just a part of the custom of the day. So Boaz is sleeping. We're told that she pulls back the covers. She lays at his feet, which essentially was kind of a sign of submission. Like, hey, would you be willing if I come underneath your care? And we're told that Boaz, she's laying down, sleeping there. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and says, who is at my feet? Of course, it's got to be a little freaky. And... Uh, And he's like, who is that? And she says, hey, it's me, Ruth, and responds with this. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are are my family redeemer. So basically what she does in this moment is she says, hey, will you take me underneath your care? Will you marry me? She basically says, hey, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it, and you should put a ring on it right now. Would you like to? That's what she does. And Boaz, we're told, then goes into like, man, I'm, I'm, wow, oh man, me, this is amazing. Okay, well, hey, yes, I, I am close enough to marry you, and you know what? Let's do it. And then it hits him. There's a problem. So this love story, no love story is good without some little twist inside of it. He realizes there's a closer family relative that would have the first right of refusal in line to get married to you before me. So he's single, he's been waiting to get married, and he's finally got his girl in front of him, but then he realizes, oh no, there's someone else who they have the first right, I have to ask them. So he goes to that guy, this other family kinsman, or this other family redeemer, and he goes to him and he begins to say, hey, there's this woman in town, you know, she's pretty homey, I wouldn't wanna have anything to do with her, but you know, he doesn't say that, but you gotta be thinking, he's thinking it, like, hey, yeah, you know, you could, I wouldn't probably, but would you like to? And uh, basically he explains to the guy, would you, do you want to marry Ruth and, and continue on their family legacy? And the guy's like, eh, I'm okay. And uh, he, he basically said that I don't want to, that would come at too much cost. I don't want to pay that price. It's too risky. I'm not really interested. Moves on. So Boaz is like, look, I guess if I have to, I'll step up and play ball and I'll marry her. And probably dances home and he decides, hey, we're going to go get married. So the two of them finally are united together and they get married. And here's what happens in verse nine of chapter four. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses today. Today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malon. That was the husband of the two sons. And with the land I've acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon to be my wife. 
This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. The neighbor women, verse 17, said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. So this was the baby boy. And Naomi's sitting there holding this now grandbaby that she never thought she was going to have. And they name him Obed. Obed would grow up and he would give birth to another son named Jesse. And Jesse would grow up and give birth to another son named David. Who would become the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. The story not only ends with an amazing birth of a child in Bethlehem, but it foreshadows and points to another child that would be born in that same city later. But also inside of the story, we're given three indicators or three things that comprise real love. We're shown real love both by Ruth and by Boaz. What it looks like to live that out, not to feel it on the inside, but what it looks like to actually live that out. And so I just want to hang here for a second and talk about three components of real love. If you're in a dating relationship, If you hope to be in a dating relationship, you should take notes. These are components that come directly from God's word. They come directly, really, uh, anytime that you see someone experiencing the type of relationship and romantic reality that God wants for them, that he wants them to experience inside of marriage, it will include these three things guaranteed. The first one comes from really something we see in the life of Ruth. What is real love like? Real love stays. Real love stays. Even when it's hard, even when it would cost them, even when they don't want to, it decides, hey, I'm going to choose to stay with this person. Ruth displays this uh, as clear as any part of the story for her mother-in-law, Naomi, or the mother of of her husband. Think about the way that she committed herself. I mean, think about that. Your husband dies. You were just married to this, to a husband. Her mom's there. And you say, hey, I'm not going back to my family. I'm not committed to my family to ride or die. You, lady, I am with until death do we part. Think about that pledge that she gives to her. She says, wherever you go, your God's going to be my God. She converted to to Judaism. She becomes a person who says, I'm going to commit to you and commit to follow your way and commit really to care for you for the rest of your life. Despite what would it have cost her? Why do I think it would cost her? What do I mean that it was cost? I mean, think about it. If you're her for the rest of your life and you're hoping, man, someday I hope they get married again. I hope that I'm going to have someone that can come into my life. Think about how your chances diminish when you have old, bitter woman with you everywhere you go. Hey, we're a package deal. You look on my onlinematch.com dating profile, it's me and a bitter woman here. If you come and you want to marry me, we're a package deal. You have to carry for her. Who's that my mom? No, it's not my mom. It's actually my dead husband's mom. How did that work? But she says, even if it costs me, I'm going to care for you. I'm choosing that I'm not going to allow you to just wander off. I'm not going to allow you to go anywhere. I am choosing to care because real love stays and she stayed for the rest of her life with her. When it comes to a relationship that you want to have that involves real love, you need to be looking for someone that says, man, I am going to stay loyal to you no matter what we face. I'm not going anywhere no matter how hard it is. I'm going to walk alongside of you even when the days get hard. I am committed to this. Someone that has an understanding of marriage, which is not something that, hey, if it works, it works. If not, we'll part our ways. But marriage is this unending relationship that we're entering into. Real love always stays even when it's hard. As you date people right now, one of the ways you can see is like, hey, is this someone that keeps their commitments? You should be, essentially what dating is, is it's an interview. And every time you go on a date, you are saying, hey, am I going to let you have another interview? And you need to be exploring, like, is this someone who keeps their commitments? Whose life is marked by, by flakiness or by keeping their commitments? 
And the weirdest thing about this is like, there's something in the dating world. And I remember it. Uh, I may be old and it may have been a while, but I remember it where like mystery is kind of like, uh, it's attractive, you know, the longer that they wait to text me back, the more I'm like, I don't think they want me. It makes me want to be in it even more. There's something about it that we're like attracted to it. But here's the, here's the true way that I could say it. Mystery now becomes shady later. And you do not want shady. You want steady. And mysterious now, as much as it's like, oh man, what is he thinking up there? Probably very little. But <laughs> mysterious now and flaky becomes shady later. And you do not want shady. You want steady. Are you dating someone who keeps their commitments, whose life is marked by flakiness, or by faithfulness. Further, a way that you can know if you're dating someone who is going to stay is as it relates to marriage, what do they think or how do they think about marriage? Like, do they see marriage as a uh, kind of consumer, contractual relationship? If then, you know, if you do these things and maybe we'll keep date or maybe we'll keep together. If not, then I don't know that I'm in this. Or is it a, a covenant relationship? Is it a consumer relationship or a covenant? Because you want to be with someone who sees this as a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is something you enter into that cannot be broken except by death. Too many marriages, sadly, are all too commonly consumer relationships, not covenant relationships. What's a consumer relationship? We have a lot of consumer relationships in life. A consumer relationship is essentially a relationship where, hey, I'm going to stay until I can find something better. I'm going to stay until my expectations aren't met. I'm going to stay until I can find a better deal, a better product, a better whatever. Like, I have a consumer relationship, and honestly, I bet all of you do, we all do, with my car insurance company. The moment that Geico can beat the price of Allstate, or the moment that Geico can beat the price of State Farm, or whatever company that you use, you jump ship. Same thing happens with your, your cell phone. Those are like consumer relationships. The moment that a Trader Joe's moves in next door, I am leaving you, Tom Thumb, and I'm headed to Craig or Joe. Trader Joe's. There's a consumer relationship. Hey, it, if it doesn't work or if there's something that would work better for me, I'm leaving this. Marriage is not a consumer relationship. It is a covenant relationship. I am in this till death to us part. I am never leaving. You need to be on the same page, candidly, as it relates to divorce. Every wedding that I've ever done, there's a question I ask the bride and groom before I'll ever do the wedding. And it is, what are the circumstances under which you would divorce him? What are the circumstances under which you would divorce her? Because we're about to stand before God and we're gonna make some pretty crazy promises, so let's just talk it all out here. What are the circumstances? Every time they always say this. Oh, nothing. There's no, no time that I ever would, okay? If he ends up cheating on you with your best friend, are you gonna divorce him? Because if so, let's just write that into the vows. It's gonna be uncomfortable and make grandma a little awkward or feel awkward, but hey, till death do us part or you cheat on me with my best friend. I'm with you. And it's, a, it's funny, but it's tragic because all too common, we stand in front of one another and we make these promises and they're lies. They're not true. And we'll defend it and be like, well, I had an out here. And the God of the Bible says, man, divorce is never my ideal. And we've done messages and there's resources in case you want to know more about divorce and what, what does uh, the Bible teach about that? You can go find more of that stuff on the porch.live. But you need to, here's my point, you need to be on the same page about, hey, what type of relationship are we entering into? Is this a covenant or a contract? Covenant or consumer relationship? Because real love stays 
And the God who's there wants you to have a relationship that is marked by a real love that says, I'm not going anywhere, no matter what happens. The second criteria, second quality that we see from this story that jumps out is related to Boaz. Boaz models a number of different things. There's so many things we could pull out from the text. But one of the things that he clearly models is that real love serves. Real love serves. Boaz serves Ruth through a couple of ways. He serves everybody. He's like opening up his field. He's following God's law, saying, hey, I'm leaving food for you guys. I'm going to serve you. He goes above and beyond to serve Ruth. Hey, I'm going to give you food. I'm going to load you up before you've done anything for me. They had no promise of marriage. And he says, I'm not doing this because I think we're going to get married or I'm going to get laid. I'm doing this because I think it's the right thing and I'm going to serve you. You come eat as much food as you want any time here. I'm going to care for these two widows in my midst. And he displayed a real love that serves. Real love always serves. Out of the overflow of that love, it moves it to serve other people around you. The second way that he served was that he protected her. That he sought to not just provide for her, but he sought, hey, I'm going to be a source of protection for you. And I'm going to serve you. If you're dating, you hope to date, or you're dating someone right now, you should evaluate, am I dating someone who serves? Like, is this someone who's like a servant? What do I mean by that? Like, do I see them serving their roommates? Do I see them going out of the way to go care for people? I mean, I mean little things like, hey, I, he, he's con- every time I talk to him, he's like, Saturday morning, I'm going to help somebody move. Or he's going to the airport to go pick somebody up. Or he's going to care for his family member because his mom doesn't have someone that can mow the yard. Or her doesn't have someone uh, she's going to serve for different family members because her grandmother doesn't have anybody who's there to care for. Is she or he somebody that serves? You want to date a servant who's going to be willing to, out of that, be a servant lover to you and a servant to your children, a servant to your home. And the second criteria thing that we see from this story is that real love serves. Do they serve their roommates? Do they serve their coworkers? Do they serve their family? How are they serving in their church? Serving is like a muscle, and if they're not flexing that right now, it's not gonna be stronger or present whenever you get married. You need to look for someone If you want to experience real love with that someone, real love will always be involved with someone who serves and someone who seeks to serve one another. How do I know that they're going to be a servant? Like, man, I see them kind of doing nice things today. How do I know that they're going to be a servant? This is so huge. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the only reason or only way that you can be sure or hope to be sure that they're going to be someone who serves you day after day after day is that they have a connection to Christ. And the stronger the connection, let me be clear, I'm not saying they claim to be a Christian. I'm not saying they go to church sometimes. I'm not saying they like, you know, read some devotionals they forward on to you that really meant something to me. I mean, they have a deep connection with Jesus. And the stronger that connection, the stronger degree that they will be a servant. The greater their connection to Jesus, the greater their connection or the greater servant that they will be. It's not just someone or this. It, it really is like Wi-Fi. Inside of my house, there's different areas where uh, I will be walking through the house and uh, I'll lose signal or I'll lose connection with Wi-Fi. And so I have no service. And so the only way that I can get service again is I got to kind of move closer in the direction of the internet box, whatever that thing is called, the router, internet box, the official term. And I got to move closer in the direction of that. Sometimes I'm behind like, you know, there's a, a brick wall or something that's kind of interfering with it. And I need to move and move closer in the direction of the router, because if there is no connection, I will have no service. If someone has no connection to Jesus, they will not be a servant. If you have no connection, you will have no servant. And let me be really, and the stronger the connection, the stronger servant that they will be. 
This is why you going into the dating relationship or going into marriage and being like, hey, we're gonna get there and, and you know, God's really important to me, and, but I think she'll get there or God's really important to me, but I think he'll get there is a really bad thing because you have no idea what type of servant that you're stepping into. You have no idea if real love is gonna mark your relationship. And the reality you're headed towards may not be the romantic one that you want. The weaker the level of their connection to Jesus, the weaker the level of a servant that they will be. And the stronger that is, the stronger, the greater degree to which they will be a servant. In this time, if you wanna experience real love, as you're looking, as you're dating, you need to be evaluating Like I said, it is an interview. Is this person a servant? Are they gonna be a servant mom? Are they gonna be a servant father? Or am I just kind of blinded because they're really hot and I'm hoping that they will be? And the degree to which their connection to Jesus exists is the degree to which you can know whether or not they will be a servant to God. Ultimately, marriage in Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, it says we are commanded Because why is the connection thing so relevant? Because Jesus says, hey, if you are gonna be married, I'm commanding you to serve one another. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 21. So if someone doesn't have a strong connection to Christ, they're not gonna have that strong ringing in their ears of this is what my God commands and calls me to every single day, to lay down my life to serve the person that I'm married to. Someone sent me this this week as it relates to, man, when you're waiting to not give up on your standards, to not give up on your patience, and I will read it at the risk just because it's too funny, and if this is offensive, this may not be the place for you, but it says this, to all the girls who are in a hurry to have a boyfriend or get married, a little biblical piece of advice. Ruth patiently waited for her mate, Boaz. While you're waiting on your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives. Broke as, ho as, lion as, cheating as, dumb as, drunk as, cheap as, locked up as, good for nothing as, and lazy ass. Wait for your Boaz. Don't. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that. I cannot. But do not, men, do not lower your standards. Trust God. And in doing so, he will lengthen your patience. Don't lower the standards that you have. Don't settle Say, I'm gonna trust God. And in doing so, God lengthens your patience. I'm gonna trust God's way. I'm gonna trust who God says to look for in a spouse. And I'm not gonna lower my standards. The third quality that real love always involves is that real love sacrifices. Boaz sacrificed money, time, his inheritance, his future at significant cost to him. He did it ultimately out of a clear love or devotion to this woman, but it came at a clear cost. He had to buy the field. He had to say, I'm gonna care for both of you for the rest of your life. He had to decide that, hey, I'm gonna have half Jewish babies, which was a big deal inside of that time. That in other words, she was a foreign woman. He said, I'm gonna allow my inheritance, my land, my grandfather's inheritance, everything that my family's had, it's gonna go to children who are not clearly Jewish. And at significant cost to him, he said, I'm gonna sacrifice those things because real love always sacrifices. Marriage is ultimately always about sacrificing Selfish desires for one another. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her or laid down his life for her, your translation may have. Marriage, ultimately, this is what marriage is, constantly, is deciding, hey, I'm gonna sacrifice my own desires in this moment to put the desires, the needs, the wants of the other person in front of me. 
It's not, and this goes way beyond just, hey, I'll be committed to you and I will be a nice guy. Real love goes way beyond just like, hey, I'm gonna get us a house and I'll bring home enough for us to eat every day. Real love involves sacrifice and sacrifice goes way beyond those things. It involves, hey, I'm gonna die to the things that I want to do to care for you. On both sides, this is what God calls and commands in marriage, this is what is to take place. And if you were thinking, and here's like where, here's where single people get stuck, I think, is you end up sitting there and you're like, Oh man, you guys have to die to yourself. That's probably because y'all picked wrong. Not us, honey. We're gonna be awesome. We're gonna like all the same things. We don't have to sacrifice and give up our hobbies. We're gonna go rock climbing together. And it's gonna be great. And I hate to burst your bubble. No, you're not. Because you're gonna be married to someone who has different wants than you. Different things that they want to do. And at the same time, in other words, if you choose to marry someone who is not willing to sacrifice... What are they gonna forfeit? They're not gonna forfeit the things they wanna do, so what are they gonna do? They're gonna be someone, maybe they have kids, they're a mom who comes home and they're like, we're gonna put the kids in daycare and they'll be there because I'm not giving up the fact that I wanna do spin class every single night of the week and this is my plan, I'm not giving it up, that's just what I want to do. And there's a lot of marriages out there like that that don't choose to sacrifice and they don't experience the real love and intimacy that God wants to take place in a marriage when you choose, hey, I'm gonna die to myself and put these things aside for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of caring for this person, for the sake of expressing real love to you because relationships cannot last and will not deepen without sacrifice, without the choosing to sacrifice from one another. You can't have a healthy relationship if you always choose self. I see this as clear as any example. The best person in my house at this is my wife who constantly is putting the needs. It's like she does this in neutral. She puts the needs of children, of her husband, of everyone else, choosing constantly, sacrifice, sacrifice. Men, this is the type of person you want to look for that's willing to sacrifice. That's saying, hey, I'm gonna put my own desires aside. I may not get to be involved in all the different hobbies and things that I want to do because I am choosing to care for the relationships that God has here. And if you marry someone who is not selfless but selfish, you are headed for heartbreak because any relationship that's gonna grow, that's gonna be healthy, is gonna involve choosing constantly to sacrifice. And here's what's interesting. is like any time, if somebody sacrifices for the sake of a relationship, it costs them something in the short term. But if you choose to be someone who says, I'm gonna do what I want, whatever I want, and I don't care what she says or what he says, or what anybody says, this is who God made me, this is who I'm gonna be, and if you love me, you would just let me do that. If you choose to say, I'm not ever gonna sacrifice, Though you may not miss out on the short term, you miss out on everything in the long term. In other words, if you choose to be someone who sacrifices and says, you know what, I'm not gonna do that, or I am gonna uh, decide that, hey, we're gonna go uh, spend money this way. Or hey, tonight, you know what, we're not getting to have, you know, we're not, she's not in the mood. It's time for a back rub. If you decide in that moment, hey, I'm gonna miss out, I'm gonna throw a fade, or this is what I'm gonna do, you may miss out in the moment, but if you choose constantly to just be selfish over and over, you miss out not on something short-term, you miss out on everything long-term. The relationship will not last, or at least will not be healthy. Think about in this story, there's such a perfect example of someone who chose because of selfishness. They missed out on something that is more significant than they could have ever even comprehended. The other family member. You remember him in the story? I mean, think about what this guy turned down. Boaz shows up, says, hey, actually, first right, you could marry her. Do you want to marry her? It's your call if you want to buy the field. And the guy says inside of the story, he says, no, nah, it's too expensive. I'm a little too worried. It's too risky for me. I don't think so. That's not for me. 
He decided, because in the short term, hey, it's not really what I wanna do, I wanna serve myself, that's kind of what I'm more focused on. And in doing so, think about what he missed out on. He could have been the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And he said, nah, I'm okay. That's not really what I want. I'm gonna turn down this girl because she didn't really fit kind of the things that I want. And he forfeited the story that God could have had for him. When they do the family reunion in heaven of the line of Jesus, he will not be a part of it. Think about that. Because he said, man, I'm unwilling to sacrifice. I'm unwilling to move in the direction of what God may have for me because it doesn't exactly work the way that I want. Let me just preach a little bit here. Men, there are a lot of you who are looking at a Ruth that's right in front of you. And because you are too selfish, candidly too immature, you're unwilling to say, man, I think this may be like a godly woman that I should consider moving forward in a relationship with. I should take that next step. You're too selfish. You want your time. You want to just do whatever you want, whenever you want. And you're being a little boy. And you're going to miss out on what God has for you. And you are forfeiting. And if you continue to live that way, you will forfeit. Experiencing the real love, the real marriage, the romantic reality that you want because of selfishness. Or that you in your heart of hearts would want if selfishness was not blinding your ability to see it. And that goes, honestly, for both sides in the room. Ultimately, real love will always involve sacrifice. And not doing it God's way will cost you more in the long run. Real love stays in conclusion. It serves and it sacrifices. Real love stays, it always stays, it serves and it sacrifices. Every time that real love is present, if you're in a relationship, you can know, hey, is real love gonna be a part of this relationship going forward? Not the emotion of love, the action and expression of love that the Bible teaches. Are they someone who's gonna stay? Am I someone who's committed to staying? Am I someone who's committed to serving? Are they? And am I someone who's committed to sacrificing? Ultimately, and I'll close here, ultimately the story here, the truest picture of real love that you'll never know and you'll never be able to identify if you don't first know the truest expression of real love and that was displayed by God sending his son on a cross to die for you and for me. My son came home this past week and he was talking about kids at school and I've got a three-year-old son and um, he, he was talking basically that he came home one day, he was sad because some of the other kids in his class decided to not include him or wouldn't let him play with him. And as a dad in that moment, it's like, who are their names? <laughs> like specifically, which ones are they? And all these different, I mean, truly, you kind of begin to like, ah, oh, huh, okay, I'm calling their mom and I'm gonna wrap their house tonight and throw eggs at their windows because I don't think I can do anything to a three-year-old. But all of a sudden, all these different emotions begin to run through you because there's not, nothing in the world that I love more than my son or my daughter or my wife. I mean, I, if I had to choose between, I mean, candidly, the, the love of a parent for a child becomes like insanity. Like when, when he comes home from school and they're like, you know, he's not really that great at puzzles. It's like, who the heck do puzzles think they are? Okay. Huh? Oh, she'll show you puzzles. What is it? It's just like you, you feel such something in your heart. It's hard to even explain the length to which you would go. And the truth is that there is not a dad on the planet, not including this one, who loves their son more than God loves you. How do I know that? Because the baby boy that would be born a thousand years later, much like this story, a little boy born in Bethlehem, a thousand years later, a little boy would be born in Bethlehem. 
who would be born not to come into the world to take over through military strength, but to take over by giving his life and dying in your place. That God would say, how much do I love you? The human race that has run from me, that has rebelled from me, how much do I care about you? I'll give even the life of my eternal son so that no one would ever have to walk not in relationship with me. That's how much the heart of God aches to be in relationship with you. There's no parent on the planet that loves the child more than God loves you. And ultimately this story, and ultimately if you're gonna know real love, you're gonna see it in the face of Jesus or see it in the person of Jesus who this story all points to. It's all about Jesus on every page. Ultimately, it's all been a foreshadowing of Jesus. Scholars have long pointed out that Jesus ultimately is all of the different foreshadowing. This was included because of him. It was meant to point to him. Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 22, even walking along this road with two disciples, he says, all of the Old Testament is about me. Every page, me, all of it. It's all been pointing to me. How is the book of Ruth about Jesus? Where do we see that inside of it? Think about the different turns inside of the story. The Lord of the harvest walks out and he looks and he sees an unworthy woman who did not deserve to have a relationship with him. And of everyone that he sees, he says, I choose them. Jesus is called the Lord of the harvest. And he looks down at you and me, undeserving of relationships, says, I choose them. The climax of the story would be a little boy being born in Bethlehem. The beginning of the story of Jesus, a little boy being born in Bethlehem. Just like Boaz is a redeemer. A person who not only was willing, but was able to say, I will come in and I will purchase back to redeem what has been broken, what has fallen apart, what is not able to be saved by anyone else. Jesus comes into our world and says, I will choose to pay back for all of the sins humanity has committed against me. I will redeem. And he is called the redeemer. All of it's pointing to him. It's always been pointing to him. And real love, if you're going to experience it, you will not ever have it unless you know him. On every page, the God of the universe, even in the fact that you're inside of this room right now, if you don't have a relationship with him, it's him screaming, trying to get your attention. I love you. And if you're listening online or you're watching from wherever you are, he's saying to you, you're in some building in Arkansas or in Pennsylvania or in Austin, Texas and Phoenix and all these different gatherings and you're here in Dallas, Texas. What do you think God is doing if he's not chasing you? You think it's just some random mistake that you're here? It's by no accident. And the God who's there, just like in every page, is pointing to Jesus, is trying to use every stage of your life to point you to him. A God who no matter what you walk through, despite the fact that Ruth lost her husband, experienced incredible pain, he had a purpose in that pain. Despite the fact that things didn't go exactly the way that she wanted in her love life, God redeemed, he worked, and he brought about whatever your story, whatever you're walking through right now, let me hear it, let me be very clear as messed up as you think you are, as far as like, man, that was pretty good. If you're like perfect, you grew up in Bible school. I could, I could date like that too. That would be great. Wherever you have fallen short, God will meet you there. He wants to meet you there. And there's no love story. There's no person story. There's no story in the room that he cannot turn around, but you got to turn to him. And when you do, you will discover he has been turning towards you since the moment you took your first breath. And he will be until the moment you take your last. And today, he extends to you, will you accept my son? He's your redeemer. So all of life is about. And he's the love you've been looking for and the expression of real love. And you will never experience real love until you know that and you know him. Let me pray. 
Father, thank you that you are a God who takes broken people and relationships and out of ashes, you bring forth beauty. I pray for anyone in the room right now who feels like they have fallen so far from where you would have them in terms of relating to another person and their dating relationship and engagement. Maybe they got a divorce in their past and they just feel like such damaged goods that you would meet them there just like you met Ruth who had to feel like I'm damaged goods. For every guy in the room who feels like they've blown it too much, God, that you would meet them there and strengthen them. And that all of us would take that next step in your direction and turn towards you and discover you've been turning towards us for all of our life. We love you, God. Thank you that you loved us first. And out of that overflow, we love you back. We worship you in song now. Amen. If you've never had a chance in your life, you have accepted that free gift. We'd love to talk to you. If you're at just a place in your life, we want someone to pray with you, come alongside and, and, and speak with. Maybe you're in a relationship, you're just not exactly sure what to do. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, do anything we can to serve you. So we'll have an entire team that'll be down front that would love to serve in any way that we can with you. In addition to that, tonight is a porch late night where we throw a party out in the lobby. And so we'll have a chance to hang out and join that and be a part of that. We'll hang out until ladies you want, or 10 o'clock. In addition to that, we've got a party that we are throwing called Awaken that you guys heard about earlier. That'll be this Memorial Day weekend. And tonight, you have a chance. Oh, there is a price increase tomorrow night, Wednesday at midnight. They're selling tickets in the lobby. Jenny Allen has now just jumped on board to be there. Uh, Francis Chan, we've got a band that we've been sworn to secrecy on. We're so excited. Maybe you'll find out at some point. But uh, Francis, Phil, Shane, Tripley, Jimmy Needham, like a huge host. Of course, our Watermark family, JP, everybody. And we're so excited for that weekend. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, you can find out more. If you're interested in serving at that, we got a chance. Garrett's holding you about up right in stage two, which is go right up these stairs, go right over to the, the doors over here by the children's building. You can't miss it. If you get upstairs, we'll, we'll hook you up and somebody will find you. You can be a part of serving, joining the hundreds. My guess is we've only got a couple thousand tickets or seats left to be a part of that weekend. And so make sure that you sign up tomorrow. Price will increase. That is it, I believe. That's everything. You guys go in peace and love and serve the Lord this week. Yeah.